Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. On today's book club... We chat with former British number one, Grand Slam finalist and tennis broadcaster John Lloyd about his new autobiography, Dear John. Kim, we have our first book club episode of the season and what a special guest we have in store today with none other than the former British number one Australian Open Grand Slam finalist and Wimbledon broadcaster, a man who I feel has pretty much been there and done it all in the world of tennis today. Yes, I know. It's very exciting to welcome John Lloyd onto the show. John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm uh, I'm here in Florida. I'm not. I'm coming over to England on Friday to start at uh, at Queens, and I've been watching the tennis today from Nottingham. On the the grass looks magnificent there. I must say the weather looked a bit suspect. I was a bit nervous <laughs> seeing people in their ski jackets, and uh, here here it's uh, 85 degrees, and I'm thinking, okay. Uh, got to get on the plane in a few days, but uh, shall I delay it? That's the big question. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of travel disruption, actually, flight cancellation. Oh, so that. might get delayed anyway. Who knows? Uh, hopefully <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> hopefully you'll make it in one piece. Um, yeah, the weather's not looking too good, but um, maybe the sun will come out for when you when you arrive in the UK. Um, are you uh, you're coming over for, for Queens as usual? I take it you're uh, bread and yes. butter. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I do Queens and then I do the four days of Wimbledon qualifying, which is always fun. I, I always love that event. And then I go, obviously, onto Wimbledon for the two weeks. So it's uh, it's a busy month, more so th- this year, just because I've got uh, things to do with the book and everything else. But it's uh, it's always it's a fun time. I actually like the Wimbledon qualifying. one of my favourites, to tell you the truth, because it's uh, it gives you an opportunity to sort of wander around and you know, see the, some new stars coming up. And it's, 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 I think it's one of the best deals in, in tennis for the public to go and watch that. I think it's a big bargain to go out and watch about 18 courts of some, you know, damn good tennis going out. So these people are fighting for their lives to get into the main draw at Wimbledon. And I think it's uh, fun to watch it and fun to commentate on it. Yeah, I think it's kind of a hidden gem, isn't it? You can get really like up close. It's very kind of relaxed yes. compared to the championships, which is just yes. the whole different scenario um but yeah we've just obviously had the end of the clay season as we as we're recording this day after the french open final um did you watch much of the clay what what were your kind of main thoughts on the last few weeks well it, it all comes down to really uh, on the men's side obviously rafa and uh, you know is it is watching him uh, on sunday and and you know john mackerel i was listening to john mackerel and he was saying about sporting achievements and he was talking about some other American sort of superstars that of Wayne Gretzky, uh, the, the great hockey player, and I can't remember who else he mentioned now, but talking about them in comparison with Rafa's achievement. And I, I, I don't think that the 14 wins, whether he goes on to be the GOAT in terms of, you know, whether Novak eventually catches him up and goes past him, who, who knows? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. But the 14 uh, slams on one surface. Uh, it, it is it is absolutely mind-boggling. It, it, it's just you, you can't even. I mean, just to, to even play the tournament that many times is a feat in itself. And to have won it and to have done it in the way he's done it uh, over and over again, and looking like he's twenty years old out on the court. It's absolutely. It's it's the. I think it's the greatest sporting achievement by an individual on the planet ever. In, in any sport I don't see how any anything can can compare with that yeah it's funny we were talking about how you know Pete Sampras won 14 Grand Slams total and mm. we thought you know that was a record that was you know not going to be surpassed or even got near any time soon and for you know Rafa Nadal to go and do that on one surface as you said 
is absolutely incredible, especially with, you know, all the talk around his foot and injury, etc. It just makes it even more of a, a compelling story. And as you said, it's, yeah. it's one of those stories that I think transcends tennis. It's, it's yeah, impressive to everyone in tennis, but it's one of those ones that I think you stand up and take notice and you can appreciate just whatever sport you're into. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the, the French... The French Open, uh, obviously one of the four slams, and the slams obviously are all mega important. But if he'd have done that at Wimbledon, uh, because Wimbledon is in a class by itself in terms of the media coverage throughout the world, the the, the you know the position it's got itself into that, that people who are not really tennis fans know of Wimbledon more than anything else no one would be talking about anything else. Uh, no disrespect to the French Open, which is, as I say, one of the slams, and it's incredible. I don't think it's getting the coverage that it should. I really don't. What, he, what he's achieved is, it is it's absolutely beyond belief. Yeah, ex- exactly. And as much as we, you know, we would love to talk about, uh, you know, Rafa uh, in this episode, we of course want to talk about your book, Dear John. <laughs> it is your, you know, your autobiography. And we, you know, we've been you know, with it the last couple of weeks now, you know, had a read through it. And we've, we found it a real kind of interesting and insightful piece into the John Lloyd story. And, uh, you know, if it's okay, we'd love to ask you some questions, um, you know, that we, you know, have put together in our script based on yeah the time we've had over the last couple of weeks and I guess you know the first kind of starting point for us is just just talking about the the book itself and the kind of the motivations behind it why why did you kind of feel like right now was the time to go out and kind of release uh, your autobiography well the release is is a is a different matter because to be honest the book was finished apart from the last chapter which we we did as a as a sort of an added part to it because of covid uh, we we oh, finished okay. this book a, a number of, you know, two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, obviously it was just the wrong time to release it. It just didn't work out. It wasn't the right way because Wimbledon, it, the, you know, wasn't on for one year. And then the next year there was all the stuff going on. And it was, it just wasn't felt, it didn't feel like it was the right time. So it's been done for a while. But I, I've been thinking about doing the book for quite a few years, to be honest. Uh, and I think the main motivation was, to be honest, that, the other book that, that I did many years ago when I was married to Chris Everett called Lloyd on Lloyd, which was written by Carol Thatcher, um, was not exactly uh, my most uh, crowning moment in my life. I, I, uh, I, it was a silly thing for me to have done. I was in a bad, bad place right then. And the book was it was a, you know, not a good book. It sold well, but it wasn't a good book. And I, I was disappointed with Afterwards, I, when I you know read it, and I thought, well, why the hell did you say these things? Half of them are not even true. What what were you thinking? And I was in such a sort of bad place at that stage, and in, in so many ways, uh, that I always wanted to do something where uh, the book, not just ego wise, but just to sort of come up with something that you know, because I've been very fortunate in 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 life in general, but you know, particularly to be on the tennis circuit for as many years as I've been, and been in so many amazing uh eras of players and and i think you know you 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 do meet a a bunch of amazing people traveling around the world and uh, you know if if you can somehow put that into a book in in terms of making it sort of amusing and interesting i always thought there was you know that i had a half decent book in me and the first one certainly wasn't uh and and uh, i think this one you know, we've myself and Phil Jones, who is obviously my co-writer. We've we've managed to make it sort of a you know a half decent read that people hopefully will, will you know will have some fun over. That's, that's that was the the whole plan. It was just something I felt like I needed to do really. Yeah, definitely. I think also it's it's something that I think will appeal to not just tennis fans, but you know you've got a lot of um, your off court activities on there as well. So I think it's you know for all sports fans, it's a a really good read. And what I particularly like about the way you structured it was the series of letters that you've written to, you know, your past self. So was there a particular inspiration for like formatting it in that way? Or um, was it just, you know, that's, are you, are you sort of often writing um, like letters or, you know, how did you no, choose, choose to do it that no, way? <laughs> no, I, no, no, I wish that was it. And I was, uh, no, that's not me at all, to be honest. I, I, I struggle with that. I try, but I'm not particularly good at it. But it was actually Phil Jones's idea, to be honest. Um, when we we originally got together and we talked about 
the first thing was the title of the book. Before we even started, we thought about it, and mine was not original at all. Uh, my thought, but I, I originally thought let's call it Lucky Lloyd because I I believe I've been extremely lucky in my life, and and you know it, it, it was a fine, it was okay title, but it was you know a bit sort of corny, I suppose. And Phil said, uh, you know, that's that's fine. And we talked about it. He said, but, but, but I, what about an idea about, you know, because you've talked about things that you sort of wish you'd done differently, like we all do and everything else. And and he came up with the idea of Dear John. And as soon as he said it, 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 it clicked in my mind. And I thought, uh, I love it. I love the idea of it. Mm. So I, I can't take any credit for it, to be honest. Uh, that was uh, that was all Phil. And I'm glad he did it because I think it was, it's just – it's just something a little bit different. That's all. Whether it, uh, mm. whether people like it or not, hopefully we the response we've had seems to have been pretty good. So I think we're on the right track. Yeah, I like the kind of different kind of framing, particularly at the start and the end of the the chapters. In terms of, as I said, how it adds a little bit of a, a different spin on it and adds that sort of bit more kind of personalization to it. I mean, mm. just looking the different letters that are in the book. Are there any that kind of stand out to you in terms of uh, you know stories and and kind of are standouts of for you and should be for any any of the readers well i, I try to make it um obviously it's about tennis obviously and about mm. the career in it but but i i'm not when you're a when you're a a, a, a great player you know the McEnroe's, the connors the beckers and so on and so on board you can write a book and you can talk about 90 percent of the book you can talk about your matches and stuff on the tour and what you did at this stage at wimbledon when you're in the quarterfinals and match point down and you won. Well, I was a good player, but a long way from being a great player. So for me, the tennis side of it, yes, I write about certain things, but but it wasn't enough to write a book and it, people would, I, I'm not a big enough name for that or, or, or didn't achieve enough to do that. Uh, but, but I think that I've been very fortunate to be around, as I've said, so many people uh, that, that have been there. I was married to one of the greats of all time and I've been around a lot of them and and I've, and I've i've been privy to a lot of i think amusing hopefully stories and and so i you know i i think do any anyone stand out i you know i i think some of the off uh off tennis stuff i mean i'm a big uh a big movie buff and i think some of the sort of the you know the little stories about you know movie stars and stuff that i've been around and 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 i always try and bring it back to tennis and how so many of them uh some of them are very nice people, but they're completely clueless about their tennis ability. Uh, and and to be honest, if, if if I didn't like them and they were nice, when I first started playing with them, I would have told them to take up a different sport. Uh, but I thought that probably wasn't the nicest thing to say. But but uh, when you play with them over the years and, and you know how to play with them and you, you hit to their strengths and make them look good because you can hit the ball in areas that make them look good and, mm. and don't make them look bad. They suddenly <laughs> think that they're like three levels better. And yeah. some of the conversations that I've had with them over the years of people saying that, oh, they could beat this person and this person. And, and you look at it and you think to yourself, these are very intelligent people. And it's not just movie stars. It's people in business, too, that are, are these billionaires that, are, that, that own vast companies and are geniuses. And yet their tennis abilities, I guess maybe I'm too good a, a faker with them and I fake them and make them look too good and I, and, I, and I get them close in games and sometimes they make comments about things. That are just, it's mind-boggling. So I, I sort of I try to write some amusing stuff about some of those stories that I thought were – and some of them probably weren't too happy when they read about themselves with their <laughs> egos, but tough luck. I mean, who, who, who for you was – a celebrity or someone you played with that you were surprised by their tennis ability and whose was just stood out for you for all the wrong reasons. If, if you want to, if you want to bear all. Uh, well, good tennis players. I tell you who was actually, who was played well. And I was a bit surprised. And I, I think I wrote about in the book about his, uh, I gave a, a, a lesson for his 40th birthday party with David Duchovny from the X-Files and various other things. And he was actually, he was actually pretty good. He was a damn good athlete. And I played with him. I was expecting him, you know, to, I was expecting to pick up balls all day long with him as he was hitting <laughs> in the back fence, you know, on the rise, which a lot of these players, are, you do that with. But actually, he kept it going and he was so keen and ran around like a lunatic that uh, we actually had a good game. Another another good player was, was uh, actually Matthew Perry from Friends, who I played with. Okay. I actually don't think I wrote that in the book now I think about it. Cause it was, but we did play and he was actually, I think, a, a decent Canadian junior. 
uh, and he was pretty good. Um, and then then you go for some bad ones uh, where someone like Kenny, the late Kenny Rogers, who I adored uh, Kenny, and he was very nice to me. I spent many nights at his at his home watching uh, movies with various uh, stars in his private movie theater with you know his own popcorn machine and 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 candy machine which was just for me a blissful in life uh, um, but as a tennis player i made him look half decent and and so much so that he he ended up asking his pal alan king who was a famous comedian over here who died a few years ago used to own the alan king tennis classic which was held in las vegas which was nowadays would have been the equivalent of the indian wells or the miami masters series it was that big and he asked Alan for a wild card into the doubles, into the doubles qualifying. And when I heard about it, I, I, I said to Kenny, are you in a coma? Uh, what are you thinking? He said, well, no, I, I, we, I always play tough doubles with you. I mean, I was like, yeah, but, I'm, yeah, but we, we're kind of having fun doubles. No, no, no. I think, and of course, of course he, he played in the, the, men, the qualifying doubles and lost six love, six love in about five and a half minutes. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you, you get people like that, but he, but he was a nice guy. He just was delusional about his tennis. That's all. But hey, he could be worse in other ways. But he was a nice guy. Oh, how the mighty fall! Yeah, I suppose there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of ego flying around in uh, yes. showbiz. And obviously, you've had your you know a very high profile marriage with with Chris Ever, and a lot of like you mentioned in the book, a lot of kind of your the celebrity kind of aspect. You living out in LA, obviously coming into contact with lots of celebrities out there. Is there mm. any one celebrity that you've met that you've just been completely in awe and like starstruck by and you just, you know, your legs were like jelly just meeting them. Is there anyone that's kind of had that effect on you? Oh boy. Jeez, there's been a lot of them, to tell you the truth. Uh over the years. I, I mean I you know I was very had a nice chat with Anthony Hopkins uh, in Pacific Palisades with my son actually, and he was he was charming. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think uh, some of the other guys that I've met and some of the ones where, uh, well, actually one which actually was quite an amusing story. I think in the book was was he was an idol of mine. I loved him big time. Was Sidney Poitier, mm. uh, who uh, I was a huge fan of his, and actually I met him at a at a, a party which I describe in the book. It was for some um prince of some country somewhere i can't remember it was now prince of belgium do they have princes in belgium i don't know but it was somewhere i got invited to a party in in la and i went there with a a friend of mine who was uh married to um uh, linda carter who used to be wonder woman uh, my friend ron samuels and and we were there chatting and sydney Poitier came up to us and and i was just in awe of him and so you know ron was saying it to me you know, because Sydney loved tennis, and I he said, "Tell tell Sydney one of your, you know, your funny stories or whatever." So I started telling him this story that I thought was amusing, and it wasn't too long. Sometimes I I wander off a bit, but it was a I think it was quite a tightly knit story, and I was just getting to the punchline, and I was literally just about to say it, and then all of a sudden another star came, I can't remember who it was, to my side, and Sydney turned to him and chatted with him and just walked off. So I, I thought, well, stuff this. The story wasn't finished. So I carried on talking to an open space in the in the room with my, my friend, my friend to be Ron honest, and Linda. That's what happens to me when I'm on on the podcast when I'm recording with Kim, and you know, I just I just feel like I'm, I'm in the same situation. Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, I carried I carried on, and people in the party were thinking this guy's a lunatic. He's talking to himself. But I didn't care. <laughs> I had to finish my story anyway. I mean, just just moving on to you know talking about you know a big part of the book is about your, you know your I guess your you know the sibling rivalry with your you know your two brothers David Lloyd and and Tony Lloyd. I mean, what what was it like growing up? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming in a kind of tennis mad kind of sporting family. What was the kind mm. of dynamic there? And you know, particularly with you and and David going through the 70s and the 80s, you're sort of kind of like the you know the figureheads of, of British tennis throughout. What was kind of the the you kind of the relationship and the dynamic there as you were kind of growing up? Well, it was great. Uh, I think for all three of us that we we're all in the same sport and everything else. And for me, uh, you know, when I first started tennis at five and six, uh, five or six or whatever it was, David was uh, 12 then, and he was already you know ranked in the top uh, top five, I think it was juniors in the country at that mm-hmm. stage. So that gave me a target to sort of copy and my younger brother was following me as, as I was starting to do well. So as we went up the ladder, so that was great. And then obviously we, we, uh, my brother turned pro a lot earlier than I did. And then I followed him in and he was, he was actually, um, 
you know, sort of uh, my guide to a certain extent, you know, that uh, he would, you know, learn me the ropes in some ways. But um, did it spare you on? Yes, it did. It definitely because it gave me something to aim at. And I and I saw and I, and I went to watch him play at Wimbledon when I was still obviously a junior and coming up and, you know, watching him play in front of all those people obviously was was, you know, a huge incentive for me and to have my brother as a, mm. you know, top ranked player. Uh, I was very fortunate in that way, um, and, he, and he gave me a good, uh, you know, a, a good something, something to aim at, really. Mm. And, and he took me under his wing. But although we did start to go to different circuits because I was coming up and he was already an established player, and then my ranking, you know, got up, and then I would play different tournaments, and we would sometimes mesh together and play doubles. Obviously, we'd play Davis Cup, um, and he was. Um, he was he was good. He was d- dangerous though to be around my brother because my brother. Uh, uh, I remember the first time. Well, there was a number of times, but the first time when w- we were in uh, Egypt and and I'd flown there on my own when I was young and it had a disastrous journey and got there and anyway my brother caught me caught me up and we we played in this tournament and I played in the singles and then we were playing in the doubles against these two Russian players that that were built like you know sumo wrestlers and my brother David. He's one of these people that he he doesn't realise that he's not big, and and he he doesn't realise that he's not built like a heavyweight or anything <laughs> like that, and yet he has no fear. Uh, whereas I have plenty of that, uh, and so he got into an argument over line calls in Cairo, and we were on some outside court, no one around. It wasn't like there was you know a lot of um, officials to help you, and next minute he's threatening for a punch up with these two guys and I'm backing up thinking, were you running away? Know, well, but well looking for the exit where to go. <laughs> and, I, and he started taking on these two guys that could have, I mean, could have just killed him in about five and a half minutes, but yeah, five and a half seconds, but he didn't care. And that, mm. and that happened a few times when we played in double. So I got used to it after a while, but then he did it once in Romania when we played uh, in Bucharest against Ilya Nastasi and Jon Tiriak. Mm-hmm. And it's not a good idea to get into a fight with a person who's regarded as a god in the country. And uh, when you have 5,000 screaming Romanians that want to kill you, and my brother is going in for a full-on fight, with, or trying to, with Ilya Nastasi across the net, with Jon Tiriak standing by, who, who on, on any day uh, he would scare any person, let alone me. Uh, and, but David didn't care. It sounds like these are your lasting memories of the Davis Cup. Well, you getting in a fight with with players from other nations. Yes, well, we had a few of those, but but I, <laughs> but I have to say that I have to I do have to say that if I'd have had a little bit of what not punching out people that wouldn't have been, but 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 his desire, if I'd have put that a little bit more into my game, then my ranking would have gone up. I'm, I'm no doubt about that. If we could have meshed the two of us together, we would have had a half decent player. Um, but he was uh, he was an interesting character to be around, that's for sure. And, you know, you were speaking about, you know, you've just sort of spoken about Davis Cup and you guys obviously played really well together. You got to the final, you know, 1978, mm. lost to, you know, United States. You know, you've been there as a player. You've also captained mm. Great Britain as well. I mean, what are your what are your kind of standout memories as a player and as a captain? Because, you know, I was, I was reading about, you know, when you were a captain, I was growing up, I was watching the team was Tim Hemman and Greg Rosetsky but at the same time it felt like a little bit of like a transition period and you mm. know, we did sadly go through a time where there just wasn't enough talent in in the pipeline after I feel like being perhaps a little bit too reliant on on Hemman and Rosetsky for all those years I mean yes. what were your what were your kind of your overriding impressions of Davis Cup as captain and how did they kind of compare to yeah when you were playing back in the day well, it, it you know it, it became a it, it, the sport itself became so much more professional than when, when I was playing. There were things that were done that were just everything was more organised. It was a it, it, the, the Davis Cup. I I was very proud to be uh, be on the team as a player, and then to be a coach when my brother was captain, and then to be a captain. Um, it was not the easiest thing in in a lot of ways. Uh, it's a great honour, but. I think my my biggest mistake that I made, and there were plenty of them, but the biggest mistake I made, I think, was when we, we actually, I managed to sort of half persuade Tim Hemman to come back into Davis Cup when he had stopped. Uh, and that, that year, when he came back, we had really a, a world-class team uh, because we had Tim, 
and Greg, who was still playing damn well. I mean, it was obviously the latter part of his career, as was Tim. And then we had an emerging Andy Murray, who was becoming a hell of a player, with Jamie Murray, who was also a top doubles player. So we had a good team there. We had a, we had a world group team there that if we'd have stuck together for another year, I think we could have caused some serious damage. Unfortunately, after we'd got them together and we'd done the hard, sort of the hard work getting into the world group, uh, uh, um, Greg retired and then, and then Tim left. Uh, and so all of a sudden, I've got two world-class players gone and I'm left with Andy, who was becoming a world-class player, and Jamie was a, becoming a world-class doubles player, but that was it. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I, I never forget when we, we won that match to get into the back into the world group. And I, I said in the press, I said, you know, we're back where we belong. And that was a, a silly statement to make because our team, after those guys left, we didn't really belong in the world group, to tell you the truth. And we were, uh, you know, we were sort of, we were punching above our weight. And once they left, uh, we were we were going to struggle, and I should have been more realistic with it, and sort of almost given myself an out, so to speak, and said, "Well, hold on a minute, guys. You know, we've we've done well with what we had, but this is a rebuilding kind of thing now. We've got to we've got to base the uh, uh, base the team on Andy Murray coming through, and hopefully coming through quick. Uh, and then we've got to find a second singles player that can." win some matches at, at number two and, and also a, another doubles player so that it's not always going to be left to Andy and Jamie. And, and we unfortunately, in in my period, while I was there, we never really got to there. I, I uh, you know, I put in uh, Dan Evans when he was very young. I didn't have much choice and he's become a good Davis Cup player. But when I got him, uh, you know, he was a he was a junior in essence and he hadn't grown up yet. And and I had to stick with him, and and I I don't blame it, blame him, but um, he was sort of in above his head. But there was no one else really to pick at that stage, and so anyway, the results were not good. And then obviously Andy, um, you know, was a bit dispirited by it all and all that stuff. We, as we started dropping down the divisions, fair enough, and so it uh, it became in the end a little bit of a disaster. But um, I still enjoyed it overall, and I was still very proud to be captain. But I would have loved to have stayed on for another year. Um, just to have won a few matches so that my record didn't look as bad as it mm. was towards at the end, which obviously was pretty pretty damning. Well, is it something that you might be tempted to to do again if if the opportunity oh, no, arose? No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm well past my cell date with that uh, with that sort of stuff now. I I, I, I admire that people do. It. And plus, to be honest, and I hate to say this, but the Davis Cup now to me is is not the Davis Cup anymore. Mm. It's, uh, it's a Gerard it's, Piquet it's, Cup. Yeah, it's 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 very sad what's happened with it, and I, I but I, but I have to say uh, I, I said this years before I said it, it before I was Davis Cup captain that once once you start getting I, I equated it to a certain extent to because I think a lot of people it's good to always equate things to football in England but I equated it to the FA Cup uh, when when Alex Ferguson the first time uh, when he. He pulled his players out uh, and put a reserve team in the FA Cup. That was the beginning of the end of the FA Cup. I know it's had a little bit of resurgence recently, but it's still not. It's still, it's still uh, managers still put in half of their players sometimes. Uh, and in, obviously, in the old days, the, the FA Cup was gigantic, and the World, the Davis Cup was the same thing. And, and when I was commentating before I became captain, you know, when you started getting four or five out of the top ten each year not playing and picking, you know, certain matches when they were at home and then they wouldn't go. It was, to me, the end of the Davis Cup or becoming the end. And they had to somehow uh, regroup and change it out, change it up. And unfortunately, what they've done, they've gone too far the other way. And now it's lost all the sort of fabric that made it the Davis Cup. And for me now, to be honest, I don't even bother watching it anymore. It doesn't, doesn't interest me. It's, it's done from what it used to be. Just on that, how have players' perceptions of of Davis Cup changed? Do you think since Completely. you know you played for it? Because it sounds like back in the day, everyone loved it, everyone was passionate about it, playing for their country. But do you feel like nowadays it's not as high on agenda as maybe like individual success and ranking Absolutely. points, for example? Absolutely right. I, I always said uh, I, I, I said one quote, and Pat Rafter, who was then became captain of the Australian team. He mm. said, I love your quote. And it was basically, when is it not a privilege to play for your country? 
Uh, and unfortunately, nowadays, I don't think it's a big deal uh, for players anymore. Not all of them. I mean, I'm not putting everybody in the same, but I think for the for a lot. Uh, and whereas in my day, it was sort of the first thing you put down after the slams was Davis Cup. Was you know wh- wh- where are we going? Who are we playing? You know where's the what's the draw and so on and so on. Uh, I don't believe it's that way now. I I, I totally don't believe it. It's now uh, you know obviously still financially very good now. And so people, uh, players, some players are playing it, but but some of them that don't need the extra money, I don't think that I don't think the lure of the money, they, they make so much money these days in, in in exhibitions and other events that they don't need to add the Davis Cup to their calendar, and uh, it's it's going to die a death, I'm afraid to say, if it hasn't already. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about playing for your your country because the Olympics as well is another one of those competitions that I feel is is also at a point where some players you know would rather go chase ranking points than you know Absolutely. play play for their play for their country and um yep. and I think you know mixed doubles I don't think existed in the Olympics I think when you were playing no. and then it got introduced and you know I feel like you would have been chomping at the bit to to you know again represent your country and and play for the Olympics uh, play in the Olympics but yeah again today it feels like a completely different kettle of fish it, it, it's all about it's all about you know uh, making sure that your schedule is right. Uh, if it's convenient and and you know you, the, the certain weeks are right, then players will play the Olympics. But it adds to an already added uh, uh, calendar, and I don't believe by any means it's uh, it's it's in the first bracket of of where a lot of players don't want. I mean, listen, some players and you know Andy and obviously. You know, Federer when he won the gold medal in the doubles, and and I think for some it's it's a it's obviously still a big occasion, but I do think there's there's a number of players that for them it's just it's just another event really, and doesn't it doesn't add anything to sort of their resume in terms of what they want to achieve. Yeah, I think um, tennis has so many events going on, but yeah, certain things yeah. have just become diminished, and obviously the Grand Slams still take precedence, which yes. you know obviously. Talking about Grand Slams, you reached the Australian Open final. Um, you know, you were up against yeah. Vitas Gerolitis. I think at the time you were the first British man to reach a, a single Slam final since since Fred Perry, I think, uh, had yeah. done. So it was a big, big moment for you. Um, what are your kind of lasting memories from that match? You know, you lost 6-2 in the fifth set and, uh, right. you know, you'd come well, back from two thanks sets Thanks, Kim, for reminding him. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny you actually you're talking about that match. I mean, look, first of all, cards on the table. It's obvious that the Australian Open wasn't the slam it, it is now at that stage because it was over. It started on the 26th of December, Boxing Day, as we know, um, and a lot of players were like, eh, "Do I want to go over there and prepare over Christmas?" Grass courts on Boxing Day. That's a strange. That feels quite strange. That's what. It, that's when the Australian Open started, and 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 of course for me. So, you know, people would say, well, what about you? I'm going, OK, let me think about this. I have a chance to play the summer circuit in Australia for six weeks, right over Christmas, 80 degree weather in Brisbane, Adelaide, Melbourne, Perth. Or should I stay in London with the snow and the rain? Let me think about that one. Uh, I think I'll go to Australia. <laughs> uh, much as I love England, there was no choice for me. And so I loved it. But but we didn't have, I think we had three out of the top 10 players played that the year that I got the final. So you know, all being said, you know, if obviously Borg and Connors and those guys had played it, um, I would, unless this had been some food poisoning around, I wouldn't have been in the finals. Um, but it is what it is. I got there uh, and then I really should have won the match. And funny enough, someone just sent me. I hadn't seen it. Uh, or if I have, I banished it from my memory. But someone sent me a video of it the other day and I've be, be, watched it actually. And first of all, uh, it, it's actually funny that you look at yourself and you think, compared with today you think boy that really was slow motion I, mean, I already knew the tennis was different we had good <laughs> rackets but I mean it was looking it was so different the grass was terrible I was going to ask about that how how does the grass in Australia compare to the grass at Wimbledon well the grass in Australia was awful it wasn't as bad as the worst was the US Open when it was at Forest Hills when it was on grass those courts were disgraceful uh, the, the ones in 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 uh, Kuyong in, in Melbourne were poor in comparison with what mm. what we had in England but having said that all grass in those days was completely different even Wimbledon and and I and I watched the, the match and listen obviously these guys today are unbelievable but I tell you something 
they would not, with the grips they have now, they would not have liked to have played on that grass at the Australian Open with balls flying at them low and trying to get their rackets with their grips under there and get the ball to flip over the net with the ball and odd bounces going and it was skimming and skid through the courts. Uh, it was night and day in comparison with what the courts are at Wimbledon today uh, and, and what they used to be in those days. And, and Australia, as I say, was nowhere near as good as as, uh, uh, as Wimbledon. But um, it was funny to, to watch it, but I should have won that match. I, I, I took my, he got, he, my, my opponent, who was one of my better friends on the tour, who we practiced with, I practiced with him almost every day during the two weeks. And, and, and the night before the finals, uh, we were having dinner. And I said to him, uh, Vitas, it's my first Grand Slam, yours. Uh, are we going to practice together tomorrow before the finals? And he looked at me and he said, and I won't say exactly what he said in swear words, but basically <laughs> said, you know, what, are you going to learn something from my game that you don't already know? And I'm going to learn something. I know your game. You know my game. Of course we're going to practice. So we hit like an hour and a half before the finals. Um, but what I didn't know was that he was suffering from cramp after the third set, because in those days they had a 10-minute break. And we were in different locker rooms because I was superstitious and my, I didn't want to change my locker. And I was in the locker room that was about 100 yards away from the stadium and he was in the one underneath the stadium and he was writhing around the place with cramp. And so in the fourth set, you know, he started, he was very stiff and he started to... I could see that I knew that there was something that he had cramp and I just tried to change my game to to adjust to that. And I was beating him fair and square before he had the cramp in the third set. I won the third and I was on top of him and I changed my game a bit. And then he kind of got rid of the cramp, played one good game to break me. And I was I, I suddenly panicked and, uh, and I never got my game back and lost in the fifth. And I should have won that match. But uh, anyway, uh, if there was someone I was going to lose to, I'd rather have been him. But But obviously it would have been nice to have... Do you know, I tried to I tried to find highlights of this on YouTube and I, I couldn't find any highlights at all. So, uh... Well, I don't blame you, but I found them somehow. <laughs> Someone sent them to me and I watched it and I've sent it to a few friends of mine and they're all looking at it going, seriously? And I went, seriously? That was me. <laughs> that was me playing. <laughs> we were running at five miles an hour. No, we actually ran pretty quick, but the rest <laughs> of the game in comparison, there was no rallies. And the commentators were absolutely horrendous in those days too. Oh my god! Not that I'm any great spot, but <laughs> but they were so bad. Oh my god! They, they they no one had any stats. They didn't know any of that stuff. So they would just say, "Oh, that was a wonderful shot," and then on the next one, and then uh, oh this yes you know oh, nice day here and all this stuff. It was great to listen to. I loved it, but it was a bit of a load of rubbish, really. Just talking about some of your Grand Slam successes in the mixed doubles. Um, you know, you won three mixed doubles titles with Wendy Turnbull, two at Wimbledon, one at the French Open. I mean, mm. how how did that come about? I mean, when you were growing up, did you ever think you would be a mixed doubles grandstand champion? How did you get into the, you know, the doubles game? And, you know, did you ever think you were, were going to be a kind of a threat on the on the doubles court? Well, I, I always loved doubles because I, I think in England, particularly, we grew up playing team games, you know, teams, team doubles and a lot of doubles at the clubs and tournaments and and all that. I love doubles. I love doubles. And but to be honest, on the circuit in the men's doubles, I, there was a number. There was a few years there where my doubles was was actually pretty decent, and I had offers to play with some highly ranked players at the time. But to be honest, the, the, there was almost no prize money, and some of the people that asked me to play with them, they were assholes. I, you know, I didn't like them. And there wasn't enough money in the game. If I'd been playing today with the money they'd got in the doubles, I'd play with you know the, my worst enemy to make the money they're making now. But in my day, there was no money. So my philosophy was, let's just play play with someone, you know, obviously decent, but uh, and have fun. And that's what I did. And, and the same with the mixed. I, I never really took it. I played with some really nice people in the mix. I'm not going to name their names because they'll, they'll then look and say, oh, I wasn't that bad. Well, they actually were, to be honest. But um, and and so we we played in mixed at Wimbledon. We had some fun, but there was I we didn't take it seriously. And then uh, Chrissy, uh, uh, when I was married to Chris and Wendy, we she was very good friends with Wendy, and I was good friends with Wendy. Suggested look for us to sort of basically to get together and play. And Wendy had already won slams, and so she was a winner. And it was like she wasn't in it to play for fun. She wanted to win the damn thing, and so that kind of made me go up into a different mindset with the mix. And um, as I say, we won two, uh, won, a, won one in the French, and we should have won another Wimbledon too, actually, which I blew. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, a, it was a great period of my 
period of my time, a time time period, and people will say, well, yeah, it's a mixed doubles. Yeah, absolutely right. Is it as important as the other events? No, but it's still a Wimbledon and it's still a French. And, and I have to say, when I looked down at my parents, when I was getting the presentation in the Royal Box, and I looked down at my parents who had sacrificed uh, so many years of holidays to, to, to spend their money on us so that we could go around the English circuit and play tournaments, Believe me, I looked at their faces and their smile, it made it all worthwhile. So I don't take them lightly as well. And I've got them in my, uh, the only two trophies I have in my apartment, actually, my two Wimbledons. And I have to say, though, I've been a bit lazy and, and the, the silver has turned a little bit black. So I've been a bit <laughs> oh, <laughs> Need to get them polished. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, talking about when you were married to Chris Ever, you know, how how was that? Because obviously she was super famous, you know, superstar, the golden couple of tennis and, you know, playing at Wimbledon, especially all that pressure from the home crowd and all the kind of, I guess, the media circus around both of you. I mean, what was that like for you? Did you sort of, were you very distracted by all of that? Um, You know, were you unable to kind of focus so much on the actual tennis because of everything going on off court? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't say that about Wimbledon. Wimbledon was that's my one regret. Uh, well, mm. no, that's not my one regret. My one regret is that I I never trained as hard as I should. And I was lazy mm. and I didn't work hard. That's my big regret. And I've said that in the book, and I say it now when I hit with people, you know, sometimes juniors, I tell them just whatever you do, give it hundred percent because then whenever you stop, wherever that level is, you know you've done it all. And I didn't do that until the latter part of my career, but. But being married to Chris didn't hurt or help my Wimbledon singles. I was bad at Wimbledon the singles. I did not take the pressure of being one of the top British players, sometimes the number one, sometimes number two, and never adapted well to it, which was a weakness in uh, really in my character. I should have. And, and the ridiculous part was it's not like I was a, a non-pressure player because there's pressure in Davis Cup when you're in representing your country. And I came through some big matches and I came through, you know, the US Open, which was still a slam in the Australian. So... But for some reason at Wimbledon, I never played well. So I, I'm not, that is in no shape, blame, if there's such a word as uh, being married to Chris. On the other side of it, um, the other uh, the other part of my life with her, um, when you marry someone who is a megastar as she was, I, I was fortunate that I was not in that league, but I was all I was already well known in Britain when I married her. And so I was used to... Uh, being out in the public's eye and all that stuff. So it wasn't like I went from one thing uh, and completely didn't know what was coming. I knew what was coming. I didn't know it was going to quite be as big as it was, uh, but I knew it. So so in some ways, I I was able to kind of know what was going to happen. And and you you put your ego at the door if you marry someone who's obviously a much bigger star than you are um, and has got much wealthier and all that stuff. And if you don't want that stuff, then don't marry the person. And 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 Chris was very good with that. She never, uh, in any way, tried to sort of talk down about my career or or the money side, any of that sort of stuff. Never came into it. You know, the marriage was, you know, fifty fifty, and that's the way it was. Um, well, apart from the end of it, but um, uh, but so uh, she was great in that way. It was really down to me. I I, I started spending more time going to Chris's tournaments, trying to do both, playing my tournament often losing the first round or second and then travel over to where she was playing, work her out. And and this is, again, not being sexist it's, uh, because she was a great player, but training with even the number one player in the world in comparison with playing against the guys is night and day. And so gradually what happened was I was going back into the men's tournaments and I was a step slow. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's just that's just the facts. And I started losing more. And instead of, you know, making my mind up one way or the other, I kind of let myself do it and my career started dropping down. And then I started spending more time with Chris and she she needed me to be around and she wanted me at tournaments. And I got great pleasure in watching her win big tournaments, but my my own career suffered. And in, in looking back at it, um, I shouldn't have let it go that far and I should have been a bit more um, proud, not proud, that's the wrong word, but I should have spent more time on myself in that way with my career but but having said that both of us going at it at 100 percent wouldn't have worked so the, the bottom line was as, and i said in the book you know we we we, we married probably 10 years too early uh, while we were both having a career like this it's very difficult to do that when you're both mm. on the road on the circuits different different places it doesn't really work 
Um, but we made the best of it, and you know, we lasted eight years. wasn't the end of the world. But um, anyway, it was a it was a big big experience uh, being married to someone that famous. That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting you talk about that that balance because even nowadays I don't feel like you get big you know sporting couples. They're quite a, I feel like a, a rare thing, and and perhaps it is due to that feeling that you can't both be a hundred percent at the you know at the same time and there's always got to be some sort of give or, or take um yes. i mean y- you spoke earlier about uh you know lloyd on lloyd your your you know first first book it sounded like you've, you know, you've had regrets about it i mean can you just talk to us a bit a bit more about that because i was, I was sort of reading about it and you know it sounded like it was like you know the peak of your fame in the you know in the 80s and you know you got this opportunity i imagine to I guess make lots of make lots of money with a, a book yes. to capture the moment, and I feel like you you went for it, and yes. you know in that moment you were like, yes, this is great. But it well, sounds like ever since, have you sort of lived to regret it? Yeah, well, yeah, I wouldn't have said that the reaction you had at the end about yes, that that mm. never really happened. The money was. See, the thing is, to be honest, you know, the money side of it, you know, we have an we have an agent, obviously, and the agent comes up with this thing and said, oh, there's this talk about this book and you'll make this and that. And I was like, to be honest, uh, I've never been a businessman. And, and the figures that they were talking, just with being with Chris alone, I mean, you know, we played a, a couple of mixed doubles. There was one kind of quite famous one called the Love Doubles that was at Battersea Park where we played against Bjorn Borg and his wife, Marianne Simonescu. And the, the money, the figures that were being, uh, and not in, to, in comparison with today, but in our day, were, the figures were astronomical. And then, you know, the agent would call up me sometimes and say, look, uh, we've got this offer for Chris to go to Japan. And Chris would say, ah, I don't want to go there. And, and, and I saw the amount of money offered. And I was thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd swim the channel for that. And I can't even swim. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and, and, but it, so money didn't really, wasn't really a factor. So when that deal came along, it was just a question of Chris said, do you want to do it? I said, do you, do you want to do it? Yeah, I'll do it. let's do it. Okay, okay, we'll do it. And Carol Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's daughter, was the the author, and and I would I think it's fair to say she was very pro Chris. Uh, and and listen, I was a big boy, but I was an idiot at that stage, and I I sort of got I let myself get talked into it. It's my own fault. I don't blame me rather than myself. But I was in a bad place then. I was regretting my career and stuff, and then just started talking about some things that were just not really me. And so I come out of it like an absolute bumblebee i mean i look like an idiot in it and uh, it was just not it was just not a not a not a good book from my side it just wasn't written uh, in the way that uh doesn't mean everything should be pro of course i mean we've all got weaknesses but but it really was a lot of it friends of mine said that that's not really you and i was like you know what <laughs> you're right but it's too late now so i just kind of it just kind of washed off me it was just another just a mistake that I made, you know. Hopefully our listeners won't be suddenly uh, going on Amazon to try and uh, see please if they can get their get, hands please, on a copy please, of that. Please don't. Do not please buy don't. it, everyone. Um, no, do not. Yeah, I mean, po- post your playing career, obviously you've moved into broadcasting. Was that something that you maybe always wanted to do or you were kind of interested in? And, and how has that been since since you first started? I think early early 90s, you you first started, was it with HBO, I think you said yes. in the book? Well, no, to be honest, I, I'd never thought of myself in that role at all. And it, it was pure, well, I, this is a terrible thing to say because it's not, and I don't mean to say it's pure luck because it wasn't, but in terms of, because what happened was it was a tragedy, but the, the late Arthur Ashe passed away and Arthur was a friend of mine and he worked for HBO. Uh, the luck that was involved was that was that um, I, uh, my, my second wife was very friendly uh, with someone else who was friendly with the the HBO uh, uh, producer of sport, and she, you know, and so this other friend said to, to my ex wife, you know, John should he should go out and see if he can get a job with HBO and commentate. And I was like, when she asked me, I was like, really? I've never done that before. And so anyway, uh, the, the funny part of the story was that. Uh, Jimmy Connors and 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 Vitas Gerolaitis, who was still alive obviously at the time, we we went out to dinner one night. This was about two months before Wimbledon. I don't know why we were together for some tournament somewhere, and we were chatting about summer plans. And both of them said, "I said, well, what are you are you guys going to Wimbledon this year? What are you doing?" And and Jimmy said, "Well, they, HBO have offered me the chance to do the commentary there, but 
I'm turning it down, I'm going to do something else and whatever. And then Vita said, funny enough, they've offered it to me as well. And I'm turning it down, I'm doing something else, playing this and that or whatever, and I'm not doing it. I'm like, oh, okay. And then, what are you doing? Oh, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm doing nothing. And then about a month later, this job, uh, this, uh, I got a phone call from this producer, and he said, John, would you have any interest in maybe trying out to commentate? And I said, well, for Wimbledon. And he said, yeah. And I went, he said, look, let me put, he said to me, let me put my cards on the table. Our first two choices are Jimmy Connors and Vetus Gerolitis, but we, well, you're a strong third. And I'm thinking, well, you don't know this, buddy, but they're turning you down. So I'm thinking, wow, I may have a shot here. So he said, you've got to do a screen test. And I said, what the hell's that? And he said, well, you'll, you'll do some commentating with a, your co-commentator, a guy called Jim Lampley, who's famous for doing boxing commentating in, in the States. And you'll, you'll commentate on a match and in a studio and we'll pretend like it's real and we'll do everything that we do in a normal match and we'll see how you are. So I said, okay. So I went along and did it and I was bloody awful. I kept talking when they kept talking my earpiece and they would say, <laughs> You know, okay, John. We're if, going it sounds to, uh, like us at episode one, if I'm being honest. It was an absolute disaster. And Jim Lampley, very nice guy, afterwards said, "Yeah, I think it went very well, and I, I think it'd be good <laughs> to you to work with you as an Englishman." And I'm thinking, what a bloody liar he is! And uh, and then all of a sudden, it sounds like what you. Football. This is what you say to those celebrities when you coach them on the tennis exactly. court. Exactly. <laughs> take take up get get another job. Don't even think of it. But what happened was uh, the guy came back to me and obviously now it was getting close to Wimbledon and he then made his phone call to Jimmy Connors and Vitas and was stuck with me. So uh, they got me and for the first week or so, it, I was, it was just horrific. But I somehow got through uh, got through for a few years and then HBO got cancelled with, with tennis probably because of me, but after about five years. And, uh, and then the BBC opened up and I've been with the BBC ever since. So I've, I've been very fortunate. I've worked with some great people and I've, still hanging in there somehow uh, it's, it's mind-boggling and you must have commentated on you know thousands of matches uh, since you since you began and is there I'm sure you've got lots of memorable moments from that but is there one particular match that you know was just absolutely outstanding in your memory that you worked on or any particularly like the funniest story that you can think of from your from your time in the box well, there's a couple in the book, but it would take too long to tell them, and they're a bit raunchy, so I don't know if that would work out. I don't, I don't know if your audience is R, P, G, or G. I don't know what your rating is. But there was a couple of funny things happening in commentating that was uh, you know, was mind-boggling. But but in terms of matches, and actually, by the way, there have been a couple of times where I've actually nodded off in matches. I don't know if that quotes, but uh, and I, and I'm sure the BBC would be very happy to learn that. But, but uh, one time was with... Um, Chris Bradnam, my co-commentator, and we were, we were doing the Olympics actually from Beijing, but we were actually doing it from a studio in Shepherd's Bush uh, with the BBC, and they put us in this blacked-out studio, literally blacked out, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning while we were commentating on these matches. And I'd flown in from, I lived in Los Angeles at the time, and my flight got delayed, so I had no sleep. And, and we're commentating on, on um, a women's doubles match, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning. First of all, I'm thinking... With all due respect, who the hell's watching this <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning? It was a women's double, second round or something, and it and it gets towards the end, and it's it's the longest match in history of doubles. It was the worst match ever, and I'm trying to stay awake, and I'm doing the, the Mr. Bean thing. I'm holding my eyes open. I'm pulling my fingers mm. back so it hurts. We've all been there. And, and, and Chris is a great. Chris is one of these guys, a great guy, but he can commentate. You know, and he can just watch, you know, like two flowers sort of grow when they don't grow. And he'll still make it interesting to talk about. He's one of those. And he loves tennis and he could just waffle on in a good way. And I nudged him. It got to a tiebreaker in the third. And I nudged him just before the tiebreaker. I said, Chris, I put the mic off. I said, look, I'm trying. I I think I'm going, but I'm I'm trying a bit. Just keep your eye on me. And so this tiebreaker started and it was like one all. And I suddenly fell asleep, but not in a foot. I snored. And uh, a ginormous snore came out, and then Chris nudged me, and I woke up. And you know, it, you know, you've been there. I'm sure everywhere you've been jet lagged or whatever. And you're in a plane, and you wake up in a hotel room, whatever the hell, and you don't know where the hell you are. And I'm in this pitch black room, and there's a TV on with two women, <laughs> four women. I don't know where the hell I am, and it's in two on the tiebreaker. And I start to talk, and Chris nudges me like, "Shut up!" And you know, so and I and I'm still half snoring. I don't know where the hell I was. So I somehow. I got through the match and, and scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm sure the viewers, I don't think there were that many viewers, thank goodness, because I've still got my job. But it was not, it was not, it was not nice, not pretty. 
yeah <laughs> i can imagine you've got a, a fair fair few stories to tell i mean before we kind of close uh on this this episode i've got to ask you you support wolverhampton wanderers football club yes. I mean, i can't detect i cannot detect for the life of me any sort of midlands brummy no. sort of accent no. So can no. you just can you level with me? How has that happened? Yeah. And and also I've I've been reading on Wikipedia as well. Andy Murray also apparently is a Wolverhampton Wanderers fan because of you. Well, well, I, I'm not sure if he is anymore. I go quickly to the Wolverhampton, but but, but when when I was Davis Cup captain, um, I was very good friends with um, the late Rachel Hayho Flint, who was the the women's cricketer, and she was a director at Wolves, and so we went to a match while we were. Um, playing in London, they always had a, a match against, I think it was Fulham actually, a game against Fulham. And I got him an autograph, you know, the T-shirt with the name on the back and they got one specially made. And so I think after that, I think he still maybe watches the results. I don't know, but but um, uh, I don't know if he's still a fan. But for me, it was just silly, really. When, when I was about seven or eight years old and all the boys in those days, everybody supported a team. Uh, I'm from I'm from Leon C near South End, but uh, South End were you know I I did go and watch South End a lot, but I I wanted a, a team in those days in the first division now of course Premiership, and everybody supported the obvious ones the Man United the Liverpool the and I liked and I still do this I like gold I do like gold now I don't know why I've got a thing about gold not that I've got much of it but um, and I liked the gold the, the gold cost you know the gold uniforms I, of I course of yep. and, and I and yep. I fell in love with that and I I've, I've been a supporter now for almost 60 years and I've followed them down to the fourth okay. division upwards and I've, I've been to, to, to games and, and uh, um, I, 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 when I'm in the States here, I, I don't, I don't miss a match, whether, whether it's five o'clock in the morning when they come up here with the time change or whatever, mm-hmm. I, I watch mm-hmm. every single game. And if I'm on the road, I find a pub uh, and I watch, I, I watch every single game that they play. I'm on there. I'm on the every day. I'm on their website finding out if there's any transfers. <laughs> quite sad. Quite sad. Amazing. Really, but yeah, but, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm sure there can't be many Wolves fans uh, out living in the states. So I think you're no, yeah, quite no, unique. There's not, there's not many, but but I did go into a, a, at a when I was playing in a senior tournament uh, at the Albert Hall, and Robert Plant was there uh, from uh, from Led Zeppelin, and I went up to him. And I'd never met him, and I said, "You and I have something in common." And he's looking at me, and he's thinking. Duh. Can't see what that could be, son. And I said, uh, I said, you're Wolverhampton sport. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm a di- you know, director. I said, yeah, me too. Well, I'm not, I'm not a direct director. So we had a chat about it. So, uh, yeah, Robert Plant. Oh, fantastic. Well, um, yeah. we've got a few questions from our listeners before we close uh, for today. So yeah. thank you to our listeners for sending these in. Um, this one's from Caroline, who's uh, asked, if you were playing tennis today, John, who would you most like to play against? of the current generation of players um, and also who would you potentially like to play doubles with? So any, any initial thoughts on those? Well, the, the person I'd love to play, play against would be Roger Federer mm-hmm. um, because, uh, and I'm not, there's no way taking away anything from Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal and all that. But to me uh, with, with, with Federer, when I would commentate on him in, in the days when he was winning everything and quite comfortably and people would say well yeah but it's boring watching him win 6-2 6-3 6-2 or whatever and I said no it isn't I'm sorry because when you commentate on Federer he does he'll always do four or five shots in a match that no one else could even have the imagination to try let alone pull off and for me he's just the genius of all time I would have loved to have played him and just watched him Mm. hit balls past me and just looked at him and just clapped while he did it um, so for me, that would have been the best in, in terms of, uh, did you say doubles? Doubles. Yeah. Doubles. Well, the doubles players today, they're a different breed. It's a different sort of sport to what I played. I mean, the one I would love to have played, I did play with him in the seniors, but uh, to me, the greatest doubles player that ever lived was John McEnroe. Uh, so if I'd have, if I'd have had a choice, I would have loved to have played with John McEnroe mm. at his peak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that would have been beautiful. But today... I mean, you know, there's not, there's so many good doubles played, but they're all sort of, there's no one particular one. I would have loved to yep. play one of the Bryan brothers, to tell you the truth. Yeah, well. fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we also had uh, another listener question from Linda. And Linda asked, what's the one thing you would change in modern tennis today? Oh, that's a good question. There's so many. There's so <laughs> many. There's so many. I, I, to be honest, 
if it was if it and I'm going to get a lot of criticism for this, but I always do. But I don't care. If it was in in slams, I would change it from five sets to three sets. Okay. Um, because I, I because and I and I I do this a lot on Facebook, and a lot of the ex players that I'm friendly with go nuts at me, and they say, "Oh, you're an idiot," and you know it, it's a, it's only physical that, that would make the slams no different from everything else. Well, number one, that's a silly question because. The slams will all, will always be different from the other tournaments, even if it was best of one set, because it's a slam, and so the the importance of it is it's, it's irrelevant whether it's two out of three or three out of five. Mm. The importance is still going to be the same. And with best of five these days, what I what I've tried to tell people of my era and before, and when we have these conversations, the physicality now is five times different than what it was in my day, mm. and you can't. These guys, you can't be playing these four or five hour matches and then recover and do it again. It's not, it becomes in the end, if you're not careful, it's not so much about the skill. It's, it's almost, it's whether they're marathon runners. I mean, the mm. physicality, of course, it's important, but you still have to be in great shape. Look at, look at Nadal playing against Verev. They mm. didn't finish two sets and it was over three hours. Yeah, yeah. that was a bit. It, yeah. it, 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 you can't, this is why these injuries are coming in. It, and then people say, yeah, but then there'll be more. Then, then, then the other argument I have: people say, "Yeah, but Nadal was down two sets to love, so therefore he would have lost." No, he wouldn't. Not necessarily, because if it was two out of three sets, the whole nerve, that whole nervousness of the attitude of the players in two out of three changes. When mm. someone is serving in the second set, and to go two sets to love up in best of five, it's a different uh, uh, feeling than if he's one set up and it's two out of three, and he's serving for the match. That's a whole different pressure. And the best players would still come through in the majority of cases, whether it was two out of three or three out of five, because they're just better players and they're mentally stronger. And I think it would be better for our game because we have to look in the future of our sport. And I'm sorry to say, whether it's good or or not, people's uh, attention span now is not five-hour matches, four or five-hour matches. I'm sorry for us to attract the viewer that might watch it they're not going to sit for four to five hours. And TV rules. We've got to get more viewers. We have to make this a more streamlined profession. Two out of three is plenty in today's tennis with the way the men play. In my mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with regards to the attention span. You know, when I'm at a slam, I like to kind of court hop because I just I couldn't sit yeah, down for five sets and in one you know i need to go to the loo for one thing and all of right, that practical right. <laughs> side right. of things so um no great great answer um one last question for you john yeah. this one's less controversial um yeah. we are very british podcast so we're all british here so we yeah. ask this question to all of our guests uh wherever they come from and that is how do you take your tea i mean you've been living out in the states for years now do you still drink a nice kind of classic english cup of tea or are you on well, to Harder stuff well, like coffee. <laughs> I, I'm going to probably, you know, uh, turn off of many people that have watched this that thought, oh, okay, he's not such an idiot. Now they're going to think of me as a real idiot. <laughs> but but I, I never drink, I've never drunk coffee in my life. And tea, I'll have tea if someone makes it for me, like when my mum used to make it now and again. But other than that, it doesn't interest me. Okay. Terrible to say. Okay. Now and again, I'll have breakfast TV out, uh, 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 breakfast tea out here. But mm-hmm doesn't really do it for me to be honest i'm um, um it's you know i'm more of a which is not good for you but i'm more of a diet coke man to tell you the truth oh, that okay. oh, well. <laughs> no well that's fair enough um but we'll we were yeah we have had some interesting responses when we've asked that before i think some some very detailed I think you're the like, first one i think teas. you're the first one to say you're a diet coke drinker though so uh <laughs> yeah you know, fair play but um yeah john it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show um, talking about Dear John. For any of our listeners who are interested in purchasing a copy for themselves, where is it available? Well, you can order it at your, at your bookstore. It's, it came out May the 30th, but you can also mm. get it on Amazon as well. So mm-hmm. there, there's, there's, there, you can certainly order them. There's plenty of copies available, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yes uh listeners we'll make sure to put a link in the description if you wish to purchase a copy of dear john honestly we me and kim have been reading it over the last couple of weeks and it's a really enthralling and exciting read so uh thank we would you. certainly recommend it john thank you so much for coming onto the show it's been absolutely wonderful uh <laughs> regaling tales um yeah. of your life it's been it's been absolutely fantastic having you on oh thank you my pleasure thank, thanks for having me guys it was great <laughs> 
And listeners, remember to subscribe to Tennis Weekly on whatever device you listen to us on to stay up to date on all the action from the tennis world. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcasting platforms out there. You can also listen to us on the DownloadTennis.com app. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Tennis Weekly Pod. Uh, so do let us know any thoughts, feedback and comment uh, on those social channels. And if you prefer to email us, you can do so tennisweekly at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, www.tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back next time at Tennis Weekly HQ for our latest tour catch up as we enter into the grass court season. So I hope you can join us for our next episode. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from me and Kim and we'll see you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.